We now come to our sermon passage, which is the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Next week, we'll be beginning our uh, sermon series on the book of Exodus, which will take us through most of next year. But as we're standing here, looking at a new year, and we're talking about New Year's resolutions, I thought it might be helpful for us to visit one of the most significant, I think, passages in the Old New Testament, book of Ephesians, chapter 2. So turn there, and it's printed for you in your bulletin if you have your Bible with you. Ephesians 2. This is God's Word, good and beautiful and true. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heaven and realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's name created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a joy. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your word, that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and who we are in you. So I pray in these moments, reveal to us Jesus, show us him, that our hearts might love him all the more, that we might catch a glimpse of his beauty and his majesty, and we might turn to him and find your promises fulfilled in him sufficient for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So who has their New Year's resolutions ready to go? Oh, there's probably a few of us that were thinking through some resolutions. Most of us have done this resolution thing before at least. We're standing on the edge of one year, the end of one. We're looking into the next one and we're asking, okay, at the end of these 12 months, what kind of person do I want to be? Our resolutions are how we get there. So we say, in 12 months, I want to be this person. And so I'm going to do these things to get there. And so maybe we want to be healthy. 
in 2022. So what do we do? We get, we're saying, I'm going to get serious about eating well and working out. We sign up for a gym membership, we buy a treadmill, we stick it awkwardly in the corner of the living room. Or we want to be kinder people in 2022. So we say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let all the people in my life know something that I appreciate about them every day. I say something I love about my, my spouse or my kid or my mom. Or we want to grow spiritually. And so we say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Bible in a whole year. We find one of those Bible reading plans. We put it on the fridge. We get our highlighter ready to go and mark off the days. I'm going to read the Bible. It's what, three, four chapters a day, what it works out to. But we know the story, right? Our New Year's resolutions usually end in failure. Take the resolution to, to, to have a healthier life. Do you know what the busiest week in the year for gyms across the country is? Second week of January. That's the busiest week of the year. You walk in and it's just bustling with people. But fast forward to the second week of June. So six months later, or just five months later, 80% of those new memberships have lapsed in inactivity. People go once or twice and never go again. They feel guilty so they don't take the automatic debit charge off until months later. But it falls into inactivity. Or we resolve to be kinder. We tell people in our lives something we appreciate about them. But... We forget, or it's awkward, or we start to have trouble finding kind things to say, we run out pretty quickly, and then we're back into our old patterns of action. Or, with a Bible reading plan. We miss a bunch of our Bible readings, and we tell ourselves we're going to double up on that tomorrow, but it doesn't happen, and before we know it, we're in the middle of the book of Exodus and give up. We quietly call that one off and feel guilty that we now, why does this happen? Why do our resolutions, whether it's any of those things, fail? I think it's because we get into the reality of a new year, and what we find is more of the old. We get into a new year, and we just find the same thing we just left. After all, we make our resolutions with incomplete information, right? How many of us had somewhere in our 2020 resolutions anything about a global pandemic? <laughs> None of us. Right? How many of us thought variants would make it so that here on the first Sunday of 2022, we are still thinking about COVID-19 in some form or another? We're still staring at an overtaxed healthcare system. And not only do we make our resolutions with incomplete information, there's the motivations for our resolutions. How many of us make our resolutions based on guilt about who we are? Come to think of it, how much of our life is spent in this cycle of guilt, failure, and more guilt with some shame from it? Well, I have some good news this morning. I've already read it from Ephesians 2. It's good news for this new year. In our world of failed resolutions, in the world of our old, God is at work. And the good news this morning is not good advice. It's not God giving you, here's your best resolutions to strive for. It's the gospel. What God has accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we could po possibly call, and this is going to sound a little bit corny, God's resolutions. The gospel. So this morning, I want to walk through Ephesians 2 some more. And there's so much there, we're only going to barely touch the surface. But I want to see God from God's word, the resolution that God has made for us. Four of the most amazing promises the good news. Promises. God's resolution that we can build our lives on. Promises that are stronger than our failure. 
And we'll see that because God's resurrection is sure, we can live lives of freedom rooted in His love. So let's look at the first one. And these are going to sound familiar if you've been around a while. The first one is the promise of a new status. To put things plainly apart from God, we're in bad shape. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, as, you were, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He doesn't just say you're dead in a transgression or dead in a sin. He uses two words that mean the same thing, so they're synonyms. And he uses the plural of these words. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. It's like a, he's saying that the issue in front of us is not that there's a little bit of trash that we need to figure out where to throw away. It's that you've got a heaping landfill in your backyard. And not only that, he doesn't just say we have transgressions and sins. Notice what he says. He says that we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Not only do they exist and they're over there, we're stuck in them. It's the house we live in. Apart from God, this is our status. We stand guilty before Him in all the ways we've disregarded Him and disregarded others. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 2, he says that we follow the ways of this world and quote, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, I always read that and it always felt a little bit like science fiction. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. That sounds ominous, almost like a Lord of the Rings thing there. But we're not supposed to read it and think that. What Paul is, the point he's making is the power and presence of sin is inescapable. It's in the air we breathe, in a sense. And that's what he means by saying Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The impact of sin surrounds everything. To the point that we can say that Satan, a personal being who stands in opposition to God, is reigned as a king. And it gets even worse. Look at verse 3. Paul says that apart from God, we are, quote, by nature deserving of wrath. Or maybe your translation says that we are by nature children of wrath. In verse 1, Paul was saying that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And here he's saying the opposite is also true, that our trespasses and sins are in us. We are by nature deserving of wrath. Sin isn't just a list of things we've done wrong. Our very nature, who we are, is marred from God's purposes and design for human beings. Now, I know this is heavy stuff, and I don't think Paul is writing this and saying, this is great, I really love what's flowing out of the pen right here. He's not, he's not happy about this. <laughs> and I'm not either. But I think what we see in these first three verses is Paul taking seriously the impact of sin. Apart from God, this is our status. We are guilty in our sin, and our sin is in us, and we are pawns in the game of the devil. We are in desperate need of a new status from God. Well, good news. Good news. God's resolution is that even though our sin is more serious than we can ever imagine, and even though we have earned nothing but judgment upon the way we've disregarded Him and others, He has resolved to give us, as a gift, a new status by Him. Look at verse 6. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. What does He say in verse 6? It says that now we are in Christ. Apart from God, we're dead in our transgressions and sins, but through God's working, we have been made alive in Christ. We have been inseparably bound and joined to Him. And that means, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us, we can know that we are not only forgiven of sin, which is good news, of course, but we have a new status. Not just forgiven, but declared righteous in God's sight. That's the new status that is promised. This is God's resolution in the face of the worst of who we are. 
And where before were pawns in the game of Satan, this kingdom, the ruler of the air, in opposition to God, we are now, verse 6 states, lifted above that power that held us bound and once seated with Christ in heaven. The picture is that we were bound in a world where sin permeated every bit of it under the reign of Satan. And in Jesus, we are lifted out of that, seated with him. Jesus, who is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Where we were children of wrath. Look at verse 7. It says, we are now those who receive the incomparable riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Where we live lives defined by selfishness and sin, we are now, verse 10, God's handiwork. We are renewed by God to do good works that he's prepared for us. We have received a new status before God. We aren't foreigners or strangers to God's promises. Verse 19, we're citizens of God's people, members of his household. We are his children, not children of wrath. In verse 22, we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. That's his resolution. Those who come to him by faith, we have a new status that we can claim as our own. But friends, that's only part God understands that our problem, problem isn't just that we have a bad status that needs to be renewed. It's also that we have wicked hearts. Our problem isn't just external. It's an internal one. And so we have a second promise. God's resolution that he will give us a new heart. The Bible uses the word heart to not just describe the physical organ that lives in your chest. And it doesn't just use heart to describe emotions, which is what we tend to do when we say heart. When the Bible uses heart, it's talking about the inner life of a person in its entirety. So it describes the heart as also thinking. So the Bible wouldn't use, say, brain. We say brain when we say thinking. The Bible would say heart for thinking and feeling. It pictures the heart as thinking, as desiring, as choosing. And that's why when it describes the power of sin within us, it describes it broadly. The way we think is broken. The way we love is broken. The way we choose to act is broken. Look at verse 1. Apart from God, we're dead, spiritually dead in sin, which we've already looked at. Verse 2. Apart from God, we're following the ways of disobedience. We are willing and choosing that which is selfish and wrong. Verse 3. We are gratifying the cravings of our flesh, which is a shorthand. Flesh is a word in the Bible that's a shorthand for saying our sinful nature is apart from God. Following his desires and thoughts. What we love is misdirected. And the way we think about God, ourselves and others, and the world around us is broken. Again in verse 3, as we've already seen here, by nature deserving of wrath, sin is not simply something we do. We aren't just in our sin in the sense of having a bad status. Our sin is in us. So into this mess, into the internal depths of sin's power, God gives us a new heart. This is His resolution to transform us entirely, renewing our heart in all the ways that it's been broken. So we said that the way we think is broken by sin, God leads us into his truth. The New Testament talks about him transforming our minds. That's why God, that's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, which we didn't read this morning, that God would open the eyes of our heart to know the hope that God has called us to. And why he prays in Ephesians chapter 3, which we also didn't read, sorry, that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge. Part of God giving us a new heart is transforming our minds to know His hope and love. And because our wills, what we act on and do, because our wills are broken and we choose to do the wrong things, God transforms our wills to choose and do that which is good. Not to earn salvation, 
Not at all. Not to try to earn his love. Not try to try and earn a reason to boast. Paul talks about that here. Since salvation is a gift from God from front to back, from day one to day eternity, we are changed to be people who do good works because God has prepared us for them. He gives us a new heart to follow after that, which is good. And because we love the wrong things, God transforms us to love Him, to cast down our idols and the things we chase to give us meaning. We are called to thrive and flourish in our relationship with Him, made new by Him. This is all part of God giving us a new heart. I mentioned this last week, but in the 5th century, there was a theologian and pastor named Augustine, or Augustine, you can pronounce it either way. Um, and he described sin, or an aspect of sin, as humanity curled in on itself. And so picture it like a tree. Human beings are like trees, and what are trees meant to do? Dig their roots deep to get water out of the ground and to be spread out and pointed toward the sun, right? And receive the sunshine. That's how plants can, or trees continue to live and thrive. Augustine said for human beings, what's happened with sin is we are like trees that have shut up their roots and turned them inward and have shut up their growth to turn inward. And so instead of looking, of being turned out toward God and even toward others, to grow as we're supposed to. We're gnarled. We're growing wrongly. We're going to the wrong places for nourishment, for growth. Sin has made us to curve inward, to grow in onto ourselves. And so part of what God does in giving us a new heart is He begins to prune us. He cuts away the diseased growth. And he opens us up to Him so that we might flourish for His glory and for the good not only of those around us, but for our good as well. We are set free from bondage to sin and released into the freedom that God has for us. He is giving us a new heart as Him, restoring us to what we were created to be. Trees, growing and flourishing, because He is shining His love on us. And He is nourishing us. So how do we live lives as people who are being renewed in this way? We begin to live lives with Jesus as our motivation and Jesus as our way to thrive. So Jesus becomes our motivation, not ourselves, not praise of others, not trying to earn a place, not guilt because of the ways we fail or shame because we don't measure up. Our motivation becomes the glory and beauty of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He becomes our motivation because He is worthy. We become people who live our lives seeking to love God and love others because Jesus is worth it. He now is the thing put before our eyes as our motivation. But not only is He our motivation, He is our way to thrive. He's the way we live this renewed life. He's our source of nourishment and power. We live in His strength, not our own. We seek our life from Him, not from other places. God's will for us is that we thrive and flourish as those who are living with Jesus as our motivation and as our way to and so we have a new status before God. God works for us externally. We have a new heart from God. He works within us internally. But now let's talk about a third promise. God working for us together. This is the promise of a new community. Just as God is working Christ to give us a new heart that opens us individually to Him so that we can find flourishing in Him, He has worked to give us a new community formed around Jesus Christ. 
Notice throughout this passage, the entirety of this passage, Paul says you, and, and this is a fault of, of the English language. We don't have a second person plural, not a proper one. We say you when we should be saying what we do in the South. We say y'all. Y'all is a Bible word, guys. <laughs> There's a second person plural. And as Paul is writing here in Ephesians 2, when he's saying you, he is saying y'all. He's not writing just to individuals. We aren't supposed to read this as just to me individually. This is y'all. This is we. This is us. Like verse 8, for instance. It's not just, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace y'all have been saved. The promises of a new status and a new heart are not promises just given to me individually by Jesus. Yes, they include me individually, and they include you individually. But God is determined to declare us righteous and to love us together. These are promises that we hear and that we receive and that we act upon together. It's this corporate, this we sense of the gospel. Not we as in a slide, but we, us, in the gospel. It's not something that happens by accident. It's actually about the core of what God is doing. So it's not just that we so happen to have individual relationships with, with God and then we happen to wind up in the same room or the same church with other Christians and we just happen to have conversations. No, it's part of God's design to bind us together to one another. We are being brought together. As it says in verse 22, we are being made together into a dwelling place in which God lives. His temple. We are God's temple and His household. To put it another way, part of God's salvation of us becomes the gift of one another. And maybe that's a gift that we'd sometimes like to return. Um, here in Ephesians 2, Paul references some pretty uh, real divisions there at this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city. It actually had a, new, a number of different churches that met throughout the city, mostly in households. But he points to some real divisions. He talks about cultural and ethnic divisions. He talks about the division between Gentile and Jew. And I'm sure those divisions felt humongous there. But what does he talk about Jesus is up to in the midst of that division in his church? Bringing people together to make peace. All these different people and all their diversity isn't squashed. They aren't told to just become the same. But in all their diversity, God brings them together into a community formed around Jesus Christ. Brought together for worship, brought together for encouragement, brought together for mission. And that all of that is kindness from the Lord. And so think about what we do in worship. We gather and we sing and we pray and we confess our sins together. We aren't just individual people who happen to be in the same room. We hear the promises of the gospel as we read the Bible and we hear the preaching of God's word together. In a moment, we're going to take this tape, the, the elements of this Lord's Supper, together. The promise of a new community from God is not an abstract one. It is one with flesh and blood. It is one fulfilled by you and me. And so part of this, this new community promise is God unites us and grows us into this new community. As verse 22 says, we're being built together to become His dwelling place. So, we have a new status before God. His resolution that we will be righteous in His sight despite the reality of our sin. And 
that's God working for us in a sense externally. We have this promise of a new heart from God, His resolution that in the face of our marred natures that are turned away from Him and others, He is going to renew us in all the ways that we've been broken. We have this promise of a new community, God working for us together and bringing us together to bring us peace. But we also have a fourth promise. The promise of a new world. The promise of a new world. It's this promise that led the pastor Isaac Watts to write in Joy to the World, which we sang at the end of every service during Advent, that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse of sin is found. Is your heart broken by this world? God's is too. And God does not take the condition of our world lightly. And frankly, it's hard for me, if I'm honest, to understand His ways. I don't know how He works. I don't understand how He does things. But I do know this. The Scripture has declared that He is determined to see an end to sin. Not just an end to an individual way. Not just to see an end to my sin. Or even our sin. He is determined to see an end of the fallout and the effects of sin in this whole world. He is determined, as Jesus says in Revelation 21, to make all things new. To heal this world and set things wrong. Now Paul only hints at this in, in this promise of a new world in chapter 2. But it's probably more accurate to say instead of he just hints at it, that he highlights one aspect. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, chapter 2, verse 7. Why has God made us alive and given us a new status and brought us into a new community? In order that in the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in, kind, in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In the promise of a new world, God is promising that He is going to create a place he might show us for the rest of our existence throughout all eternity His kindness. That's what the new heavens and new earth are. They're an arena that God is creating, a theater that He's creating for us to show us the incomparable riches of His kindness. So that time and time and time again we might find the grace of God which is not only sufficient for our lives in the here and now but in the world to come as well. And that means this, friends. Long after your struggle with sin, even your deepest sin in this world is over. Long after the worst suffering that you experience in this life is over, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and His kindness toward you in Christ Jesus will be the defining feature of who you are. That's the truth for who you are, God's intentions for you for all eternity. So even your greatest struggle, the area that you don't think you'll ever see change at in your own heart. Long after that victory is won, and that is over, what is left for you is the kindness of God in Christ Jesus being poured out upon you, being shown to you for all eternity. God is determined to create a new heavens and new earth where this is true for us forever. This is the beauty of the promise of a new world. His resolution to show us His grace will not be thwarted. You know, in conclusion, I was thinking this week about my dad. My dad, he died in 2001, uh, 20 years, 21 years this year. But my dad was a great storyteller. It was one of his defining features. So when I saw the movie Big Fish, if you've ever seen that, 
I just cried like a baby. It's a wonderful feeling that I recognized my dad right there. Just a wonderful, uh, he was a wonderful storyteller. So when I was a kid and I'd have friends come over to spend the night, my dad would sit up with us at night and he'd play games with us. And one of the things he would do is he'd tell stories. And he'd tell, he had like a handful of stories that he told over and over again. It wasn't like he had a new one every night. He had, he had his uh, greatest hits of like 10 stories. And we learned them, me and my friends, we learned them, we had our favorites, and we heard them over and over. And it hit me a few years ago, and as I was reflecting on it yesterday too, in a sense that my dad telling these stories and over and over again, and him telling the stories, they had become my story and my friend's stories. That as he told us the stories, they became ours, they came to belong to us in a sense. Because his stories now became part of our memories. His stories had come to include us, and his telling of the stories became a story all by itself. Now, I started this sermon taking some cheap shots at us by make, uh, you know, making New Year's resolutions. But maybe there is one resolution that we should make. Maybe in 2022, we should resolve to develop a childlike faith that would dare to ask our Father to tell us the story of his resolution for us over and over again. And that in hearing this story over and over again, we'll be swept up into it. And we'll find that this story, his resolution, the story of his redemption, becomes our story. And maybe in hearing this story, his resolution to make all things new, to give us a new status before God, to give us a new heart and a new community, we'll find ourselves swept up into it. We'll find ourselves as people who are reveling in the newness that God brings.